Okay, and welcome to our June edition of the Cinetopia podcast. Uh, Jim, uh, my co-producer, is away this this month, so it's just going to be um, the three of us. And we have two of our regulars, Mark Nelson and Clara Strachan. Hi, guys. How are you? I am fantastic. <laughs> and Mark? I'm well, I'm well Amanda. Thanks very much. Very good. And uh, we decided um, specifically to do this all together because we're very, uh, I think we're all doc lovers here. And um, it's a very doc themed episode this month um, because it's the Sheffield Doc Fest. Uh, Sheffield Doc Fest happened last week. Um, so we were able to check it out and we're going to deep dive into that festival, um, talk about a lot of films, more films, I think, than we've ever reviewed on our podcast. So, but we're, we're going to have fun with it. Um, but we'll be doing um, three other films uh, beforehand that will be coming out in theaters in the UK or online. So those three are Shiva Baby, Sweat, and It Must Be Heaven. So stay tuned for this exciting episode. So it's uh, as close to what we can get as a uh, heat wave here in, in Scotland right now. It's been quite sunny in the past couple of weeks and really, really exciting, um, which makes me think outdoor films and outdoor cinema, um, which is good timing for uh, Cinetopia to announce its first annual Cinescapes Film Festival that's touring Scotland. And you can find all that information on cinescapes.co.uk. Admittedly, it's been taking over my life. It's been a labor of love this year. I'm sure you've heard me and talk about it, but we're going to be showing Scottish films in the locations in which they were inspired, starting with the ever popular cult classic Trainspotting. And it's as I said, very worthy sequel, Trainspotting 2, I think Jim said on the last podcast. Um, then we'll be doing Under the Skin in Glasgow. We'll be doing Ne Passeran in East Kilbride. People always tell me I mispronounced that, but I'm trying. Uh, we'll be doing the most fantastic water film, um, Aquarella, which isn't necessarily filmed in Oban, but we'll be doing it in Oban. It's filmed all over the world. It's really, really wonderful. And then finally, we'll be coming back to Edinburgh for The Illusionist. So that's all through July to October, and I'm really excited about it. But again, check out cinescapes.co.uk because then you can subscribe and get more information on our whereabouts. And um, yeah, stay tuned. I think it's really great to like support females, particularly um, female entrepreneurs. Cool. In the future. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Danielle! Don't Danielle! Please, Sonia! Moira's here and her daughter's Stephanie. Jessica. Whatever. You should really talk to her, you know? No. It's just a job. Hi! Hi, Hi Mom. I'm so sorry for your loss. No funny business with Maya. Thank you. You think everyone that's bi is experimenting? You have zero gaydar. Excuse me, kid. I lived through New York in the 80s. My gaydar is strong as a bull. Mom. Mom, mom, mom. Okay. Who died? 
All right, so the first film we're going to review is uh, Shiva Baby. Uh, it's directed by Emma Seligman. She's a 25-year-old writer-director. Actually, uh, this is based on a short that she, it was her thesis film for NYU and it's turned into a feature. It was uh, premiered at the South by Southwest and also TIFF last year. Um, and it follows um, a young woman named Danielle, uh, played by Rachel Sennett, um, who's gone to a Shiva uh, with her family. Um, and uh, yeah, there's many, many kind of complicated things she runs into in the Shiva, including her, um, a man she's having an affair with, who we find out earlier on about, as well as Molly, who she's been in a relationship with, and also her family and many other people who've come to the Shiva and have thoughts about her life. She's a, she's a young woman, college, college woman, who's kind of figuring out her life. And uh, this is a very... Uh, makes the Shiva experience feel quite claustrophobic, if you will, and um, it all takes place within that period of time um, uh, and in a dark comedy sort of way. So uh, what did you all think about this film? It's interesting. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I'm kind of ashamed to admit, I didn't look into it deep enough to know that it was based on one of, uh, based on a short film that was her thesis, but that makes sense. Now you say that because this is one of the, um, one of the films one of those films I would say is a critique that it should have been a short um, <laughs> instead of being instead of being um, sort of strung out um, for the whole runtime. I mean, I kind of, I did I did enjoy it in the sense that I do like uh, a kind of female loser trope film, but then again, like you know, like a Chris Krause kind of refer referential thing. I kind of, I kind of I I do like that, but I do feel like it was kind of relying on that trope too heavily repeated it over and over again um and this constant building of of angst the angst of your family judging you knowing your problems being ashamed of yourself and then having to face that in public and the very very just the, the angst constantly swelling and then dissipating swelling and then dissipating um i thought i thought it just wasn't didn't need a full didn't need a full runtime however i did enjoy i did enjoy it in a way <laughs> I mean, I like I like watching things there. I like watching things where um, the family dynamic isn't very straightforward, and because that's that's always nice and relatable. There's nothing more infuriating to me than uh, a nuclear family presented as normal on on in modern film. I think that's disingenuous. <laughs> Fair enough. It, it kind of reminded me a little bit of like death at a funeral or something like that you know where you have this sort of without the zaniness yeah you know exactly. like without the with, which which made that film and the yeah. sort of the madcap oh god hair-brained things going wrong it was yeah I think I agree with the point about it being repetitious I think I enjoyed this far less than Clara did um although I think the the queering of the Jewish comedy of anxiety is a really interesting project. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, my patience sort of left around the 20 minute mark because this is the same joke repeated ad nauseum to me. Yeah. Um, and it's also, there's a problem with the, the, the score is the immediate first problem for me, which is the score doesn't trust a viewer to pick up the cues in the performances. The mm -hmm. score is doing this like uh, heavily plucked cello strings, worried violins, etc. And it's like, 
yeah I can I can see Rachel Sennett's face I can see that she's anxious you don't need those like incredibly resounding whang of the cello <laughs> that tells you that she's nervous or she has a, tw a sort of twinge of anxiety like I can see the performance the performance is working the performances are all pretty good I mean um yeah. I really like Polly Draper as her mother who's trying to be sympathetic and trying to yeah. like herd her through this horrible social atmosphere of people who know everything about her and are insinuating and are constantly talking about her weight and constantly talking about um boyfriends and food and like the, the, it's a mental minefield to walk through um and you can see the like the pressure the anxious pressure that is, it can be exerted on someone is very clear but the film does sort of become like endlessly kicking the danielle um rachel Sennett's character in the shins for 80 minutes and it's like what's what's exact what's the like where's the, the comedy yeah where's where's the laugh in this I didn't really laugh terribly much at it at all and if we're taking a comedy which I think is influential here which is Elaine May's The Heartbreak Kid which has a very similar not a similar dynamic whereas that in that film the things that are happening to the main character are horrendous mm -hmm. but he also sort of deserves it because he's a despicable louse so that guy yeah. like he treats people despicably so the the comedy sits in that tension between, okay, like residual sympathy, but also, mm, yeah, he sort of deserves it. Whereas yeah. here, what does what does Danielle do wrong to deserve this? Nothing really. Like she she just gets kicked repeatedly, um, and there's also something to do with the way that it's staged, because there's a there's a scene in which she realizes that Max, who's kind of um, her sugar daddy, um, he is at the shiva as well. And they end up with the main part of a scene where it's um, Danielle, her parents, and Max engage in a conversation. There are six shots, and it endlessly repeats the same six compositions over and yeah. over again. Four medium close-ups of each of them, and then two two shots of um, uh, Danielle's mother and Danielle and Max and Danielle's father. And there's absolutely no variation. So while the performances are doing their work and the script is doing its work of like tightening around her, closing around her, the shots keep on presenting exactly the same visual information over again. And so it stilts the rhythm, the visual rhythm of the film in an instant for me. Wow. I mean, I, it's just, um, I, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think, you know, I, I didn't love the film, but I, I definitely see, I, I see all your points there. And I think those are why I, I didn't love it. Um, I did think actually with doing a little research on it that, uh, yeah, I mean, her being, 25 and I, I don't you know and this being a first film I I thought it was quite accomplished for that and um enjoyed enjoyed it enough but agree that it wasn't like a plus um uh but I, I'd actually like to see more so I mean I, I, I maybe I also welcome seeing this seeing this story because I've been to Shiva's and New York or whatnot so it's sort of resonant um sort of the kind of community that you might fall into and and the pressure and uh and whatnot but um agree mostly with with you both um that it definitely wasn't it wasn't it wasn't completely there I don't know if either of you've seen um the tv series crazy ex-girlfriend which has like a very like um the the relationship between Molly Gordon's Maya and Danielle is like has a corollary in the extremely uh, prestigious and well-educated Jewish daughters who have to try and like outsmart each other it has mm -hmm. that's a musical so it has like a greater sense of visual oomph to it um, 
yeah also at points when it begins to move towards a more like more strenuous intensity towards the latter part of the film mm-hmm. there are points where it begins to get very like literally shallow focused and I began to think of like Josephine Decker's films but it was kind of like a watered down Josephine Decker movie at points to me I don't know fair I see that too I mean yeah I I thought it was I agree I don't see it was a much of a comedy but I did find it somewhat entertaining just to kind of yeah the uncomfortableness of that in some way being resonant but um I just wish yeah. there'd been any any more payoff in any kind of regard mm-hmm. than just her sort of making these lukewarm um reparations with the rest with the people that have offended her like her, her ex-girlfriend says the most horrendous things to her and then suddenly it's just okay again I thought that was a bit yeah. that really belied her inexperience I think as a storyteller or as someone creating a structure like an arc a narrative or like character development um yeah I wanted I just I just wanted something else a little a little more I was I was ready I was invested in the in the idea of it and the core of it but yeah yeah I mean maybe if, a, if we had seen the short we would have quite enjoyed it and maybe that yeah. was just like a stretch which is why always sometimes like you say shorts don't always have to ter- be turned into features and you know even though that's kind of like a way into you know a way that the industry it's a training works. wheel film yeah which is, you know <laughs> yeah. at points it does read like tell me tell me you went to Tish without telling me you went to Tish yeah. film <laughs> Uh, it just has all the cues that you would expect from an Indian. I enjoy chaotic, chaotic bisexual behavior as much as anybody else, but <laughs> they're, they're not, as Clara said, there does need to be a payoff. <laughs> no, I love that call though. <laughs> yeah, a Tish film, NYU film. And yeah, it is uh, It is available on Mubi, I believe, on demand. Um, yeah. And so check it out uh, if you would like. So the next film we're going to review is Sweat, directed by Magnus von Horn. Clara, why don't you tell us a little bit about that film? Sweat is a really timely film in that it deals with uh, social media and the disturbing, lonely world of the social media fitness influencer. Uh, But also a really small world when you think about it, I suppose, because um, it's one that we all know worldwide. Um, That's one of the really interesting things about this film is that um, set in Poland, but there are no cultural differences. It's the same scary fitness influencer world that we all know and are familiar with. Um, It dives into the surrealness of being a public figure in the social media era. And um, yeah, it gets a little, a little dark, which is good, which is appropriate. Yeah, the point about timeliness is, I think, crucial because um, when you see kind of YouGov polls and things sort of canvassing what children want to be when they grow up, the thing that's captured the imagination at the minute is a mixture of influencer and YouTuber. So this is the sort of nightmare stuff that children are going to have, or children are volunteering when they grow up to become. And so it's a bit of a warning about that, but I think the film's very, it's quite tentative at times. It like pushes a certain vision of the the negative effects of the world of being an influencer and the lifestyle of being an influencer. 
but then strategically kind of moves back from them at certain points. And there's a line that the main character, Sylvia, who's played by Magdalena Kolesnik, she says at a certain, uh, right towards the beginning when she's doing this, um, this sort of fit, fit workout in the middle of a shopping center, she says at one point, if you want to receive as much love as I just did, which is a terrifying sentence and has a real world correlate in the fact that I don't know if um, any of you saw the Chrissy Teigen thing recently where Chrissy Teigen was in some sort of rigmarole on Twitter and she said something along the lines of, I've worked so hard to be beloved by everyone. And I'm like, oh, this is heartbreaking. So it pops, it goes right into that, right into the, the heart of like the, the problem with social media celebrity and the parasocial relationships, the dependence upon audience that, that it inspires. Um, I, I think the main performance is excellent. I think Kolesnik is really, really good. I think she was mostly a theater actor before, before the film. And she has like, you can see in every interaction that she has that she's ready just to become presentational in an instant. She's ready to you know, whap out her phone and start a video just at a split seconds notice if something comes across her. But there's a moment towards sort of the midway point in the film, I want to say, where she's, she's forced to be spontaneous and it reveals a crack um, because a, a former classmate of hers kind of comes up to her and is overly familiar and intimate with her because that's the sort of image that she cultivates because she's, you know, she's very forthright with her fans. If she's feeling down, she says as much. There's a, a video where she cries to her friends about her loneliness and that's seen as a mark of her sort of, um, you know, her honesty within this. But she runs into this former classmate of hers and the former classmate shares something about a miscarriage. And the only thing that Sylvia has to sort of uh, create an equivalent to her own life is she thinks, and she says to this, former classmate, um, I've, I've thought about deleting my Instagram sometimes. And so that, that's an absolutely perverse corollary that the film creates between the amount of importance that somebody puts into their social media life like this. Um, also, this film is really interesting as a woman who gets, uh, who gets targeted a lot of really high intensity fitness influencer crap on Instagram. Um, so it, it's just quite satisfying to see uh, to see one of those characters, these perfect people who seem to have their life completely in order and be very successful uh, on top of it, um, be be disturbed <laughs> and be lonely and be flawed and then for it to take a dark turn. Um, although I don't feel like it took a dark enough turn. That would be my one of my only criticisms. I mean, maybe maybe I just uh, I just like really dark things. To other people, I think what happens would be quite disturbing enough. <laughs> um, but I kind of wanted to see it go fully off the rails and go see her go off the rails. Um, to make it a really damning indictment of social media culture, but that's just me. I, I agree. It, it does pull some punches, and although like it suggests proximity to certain damaging effects of the lifestyle, like proximity to certain kinds of gendered violence, the fact that there's a stalker, the fact that her like co-trainer at some of her events mm, has a slightly shady act of behavior later on, but for me part of the problem is that it's it's gone so far down a very nuanced and ultimately giving the main character a lot of grace i think um and a lot of agency and a, a kind of central ambiguity about whether everything is promotion and about whether her like 
her emotional videos are just simply as cravenly promotional as everything else she does. Yeah, uh, it's about how to be trying how to be a commodity while remaining human, which is almost impossible. But it's yeah. <laughs> which she tr she tries to reconcile, and like I wonder if the film is managing that ambiguity quite right because there are, if there are certain scenes that don't quite make sense to me if everything is promotional, right? So. Well, maybe leave that because that's that's right towards the end. So I won't say much more about that. But the one thing I also find disappointing is the what I saw as a kind of partially shallow psychologizing of her character yeah. and her motivations. Her relationship with her mother is kind of cast as explaining or giving her a kind of um, raison d'etre for having the social media accounts in the first place because her her mother is like immediately characterized as um, like emotionally withholding and doesn't love her to the extent that uh, Sylvia wants and needs. So that lack of res a, an easy like psychoanalytical reading would be that because she didn't receive the love from her mother because her mother didn't reciprocate, she now demands love from strangers. And I'm like, well, that that's that's very that's, simple. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's too easy an explanation for a really complex problem, a really complex phenomenon. Yeah. Like somebody might have that like yawning, gaping sense of needing love from people, even with a like, you know, well-adjusted family background, even though that family does not seem all that, like it, it, the problem does not seem all that huge. It's just those slight interactions where they're not quite giving the same amount of love to each other. So I thought there was, there was a slight weakness to that, like psychological explanation when there's actually a lot of sociological stuff that's far darker and far more interesting that the film stops at. Yeah, however, I mean, overall, um, I do, I, I do still like it because I feel there are, there have been a lot of attempts made to try and uh, consider social media, the ills of social media, what path are we heading down, etc. <laughs> sort of like, we live in a society of films. Um, but so, but so I'm, I'm happy that an attempt has been made and that there is one that exists and there like you say it does mention a lot of like gendered issues about like Instagram influencers and like women in the public eye where people feel like they own them they're sort of due you know they're, they're you know, they should have access to these people's personal lives and their body even um I thought that was interesting but yeah I, yeah issues wish it had gone harder but mm. still great great topic happy that I saw it so and also, like, um, I'm thinking of other films where the parasocial relationship is more um, expectedly mapped, right? Because there's a moment where it seems to flip the suggest, it flip the question around and say, "What if the influencer is actually parasocial of her audience's love, rather than a, a you know a obsessed fan becomes mm -hmm. parasocial towards the influencer?" So it reverses a film like *Angry Goes West*, which is totally parasocial yeah. on the fans' perspective. I should say also, like, it's very handsomely mounted. It's a it looks great. It's got a kind of like very pop, um, you know, color palette, and it it looks like a like a petri dish, um, and it's has a lot of like compositions in glass. And as soon as you see a, a, a composition in a glass, you're like, okay, there's some sort of uh, the boundaries of someone's self are coming apart here. And although those those kind of wink at cliches of other films about the internet, like. Last year, there was a film with Juliette Binoche called Who You Think I Am, which took a similar yeah. thing about internet dating. And it also had a similarly sleek, glassy surface to it. But um, I don't think it's, it's quite as assured as other attempts at it, but it, it does give it a fair good go. Okay, so Sweat is coming out June 25th um, in the UK. So look out for that. Check it out.
The next film we're going to review, It Must Be Heaven, uh, is uh, coming out as well in theaters. Uh, Mark, tell us a little bit about this film. Sure thing. So this is the latest by Elias Suleiman. It's his first film, first feature film, I should say. He has been making shorts and he's been on the scene, um, as he's perennially on the scene. He, it's his first feature film since The Time That Remains in 2009. Um, I should, I'm just going to begin by like uh, praising him because I love his films so much. Um, mm-hmm. The Time That Remains specifically I think is wonderful and extremely generous and extremely beautiful and also like hard to stomach at times as well because it's um, that's the history of his family and the way that they experience the Nakba because um, his family are from Nazareth and that has a very particular location within Palestinian history and it's kind of technically under um, Israeli occupation at present. So film begins in Nazareth and the tensions which he's documented in films like um, Divine Intervention and um, Chronicle of a Disappearance, he continues and things are at a very specific height of tension to the point where he's driving along the road one day, he looks to his left and sees two IDF soldiers driving a car, swapping sunglasses to see who looks cooler in the windshield mirror. And there's a girl in the back seat who's blindfolded and the girl kind of uncannily looks in his direction, even though she can't see him. And that seems to be like the, the, the call to get out. And so he goes on a peregrination to France. He begins um, the journey in Paris and then afterward goes to New York and then afterward returns home. And the, the general thrust of the film, I think, is this, I think of what you would call like globalized Palestine. He goes away from Palestine and he sees signs of it everywhere. Um, he, the streets of Paris are fully militarized. He happens to go on a parade day. So there are tanks rolling through the streets. Um, when he goes to New York, everybody is armed to the nines with assault rifles and bazookas and handguns and all the rest of it. Um, I'll stop there because we'll have a, a wider conversation. Claire, what do you think? So yeah, the oh, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna repress the urge to just gush over how much I love him. Yeah. Um, and I'll start with I'll start with the tagline that the film has, the, the official tagline that it has. Um, so it's a man leaves Palestine to find a new life, only to encounter the same problems everywhere he goes. Um, so <laughs> Elias Suleiman has his films are are very artful and beautiful uh, and political. They always have been, but this this particular film is is really interesting in the sense that it is 
by and large, it's a comedy, but it's and, and it's and it's almost like a quiet musical. There is very little dialogue, but the dialogue that is it's very sparing dialogue. But when it is brought out, it is perfectly written. The script is perfectly written. I will not deviate from that opinion. I will accept no counter opinions <laughs> on that. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a quiet musical. It's balletic. It's a twenty first century Chaplin Keaton esque satire of all the cultural and social mores which flicked humanity the world over. Um, it's it's perfect. It's it's very Chaplin in the sense that it mixes pathos with slapstick. Um, comedy, brilliant comedy, I should say, always contains the rawest and the riest um, and most poignant criticisms of society. And it must be heaven is the perfect exemplar of how um, of how to communicate social and cultural differences, conflicts, and humanity through comedy. Um, and it's so it's so aesthetically pleasing and well designed. Um, I mean, I, I love a static camera and a gorgeous setup and, and well-designed um, sets and costumes. So this is deeply satisfying as a film. Um, there's a lot of philosophy embedded in this film, which I really enjoyed because um, it's quite subtle, uh, but, it, but, it, but it's also glaring, I suppose, in some ways. Um, so there's, there's a lot of social theory. Um, for example, like uh, Elias Suleiman's character um, goes from country to country, um, and he's just the observer. He's extremely quiet. He barely ever speaks. You're, you're faced with his inscrutable gaze, observing and judging the world around him, and he's just absorbing things, and you absorb things through him. Um, so he's essentially Baudelaire's flaneur. He just is perambulating, he's observing. Um, there's also a reference, like a really overt reference to Balzac's The Human Comedy. <laughs> he's just standing in front of a store, and then <laughs> the humane comedy is just in the background and it's just it's quite on the nose and that is in its you know philosophical bent but that is part of the comedy as well i think he also doesn't at the end he credits um he, he says the film is like in memory of john berger yes as well so yeah so it's a film about observation observing the absurdities and the mundanity of life um and there's also yeah it veers from being um absurd and scathing and satirical into just the complete surreal, but always having, always rooted in the fact that he has an experience as a Palestinian man and the world views Palestinian people in a really narrow light. <laughs> they're not very aware of the culture, but they're aware that it's a high conflict area and there's a lot of issues. And um, obviously that's frustrating as an artist. You, you don't want to, you don't want to betray your culture or your history or your background or your people by not confronting that and discussing it, but you also just want to be what you want more nuanced understanding from the world as a filmmaker than you're going to get, um, which is which is broached uh, when um, Elias uh, Suleiman's character goes to some producers' offices or like some film exec offices in New York, and um, his treatment is just is just fantastic. They they, they want more conflict driven films from Palestine. So it's very meta, obviously, if you didn't get that it was going to be meta from me saying it's a philosophy uh, heavy referential film. <laughs> but that, that critical aspect that you talked about has been there since the beginning. I think his first film is a documentary called Introduction to the End of an Argument, which yeah, yeah. Is literally just like media clips and juxtapositions and a kind of analysis of the way it could be said to be an extension of Edward Said's covering Islam in a way, um, like criticism of images in the media of Palestinians so that he's continued this but kind of shifted it into his comedy and buried it into his comedy I think is like it was completely accurate 
Um, I also just, I love the way the film is staged. I love the symmetrical compositions. I love the way that it's playing exactly in a Keaton-esque way with size and scale and the comedy of size and scale. When you see his cosmopolitan uh, Panama hat just kind of like pop into the frame, it's very, char <laughs> it's very charming. And, and so charming, achingly charming. He's like, he's a super charming figure, like just person to like attach all of your worries to because he's got the perfect face for um, everything that the film is trying to carry. And the film is trying to carry a lot because like he's not saying anything, but when people say things to him, they are, there's an obliqueness to incident and to anecdote here, which I, I love so much. The, the neighbor who comes up to him and tells him the story about a grateful and very respectful snake who then proceeds, <laughs> proceeds to blow up his flat tire. It's, it's wonderful. Like that's, that's absolutely wonderful. And, um, and then you, uh, even in, um, you know, in Paris and in New York, you still get that balletic quality you mentioned, um, Clara. You get like the, the police officers who are riding their segways, but are doing so like figure skaters and figures of eight. And um, the, there are ineffectual police everywhere in the movie. There are ineffectual police in Nazareth. There are ineffectual police in New York trying to catch a woman who's, uh, you know, got angel wings and has a Palestinian flag drip painted over her chest. And um, there's also, there's a moment in Paris too, the, the sparrow, the sparrow that enters his, um, his room and will not leave him alone to work. Like these are all very oblique and very open, readable uh, skits and scenes, but they invite so much investigation and they have such a, a, an open sense of what they might mean. That could be a criticism. That could be, that could say, oh, there's no precise purpose to this. I don't agree. Cause I, I think like all coheres are in that vision of like there being something omitted and his like task as a filmmaker is to gather up all the things that are in danger of being omitted like the history of Palestine and the place of Palestine in the world so you get that um that forum for um I think it's for the Arab American forum for Palestine late in the film oh, where the speakers are arrayed in front of the audience <laughs> and <laughs> the, the, the guy is trying to introduce the speakers and people just will not stop clapping which is a pointed critique as as well as the moments that you mentioned with the the film offices and the production houses who say you're not the film isn't Palestinian enough or that professor who tells him that he's the perfect stranger um you get that moment yeah, they're, they're criticizing him for there not being enough conflict, which is interesting because the film is there's not the there's not the traditional structure of conflict, you know, between between protagonists, between people. He there, no one escapes his criticism in this film. That is what is interesting. It's not a, it's not a Palestinian polemic against the Israeli forces. It's not a Palestinian polemic against the international community. It's just about humanity. It is just it's about how. <laughs> the world over there are these problems with heavy policing heavy militarization misunderstanding selfishness but then also there's there's joy and there's beauty and it, it's just yeah it's, it's wonderful so yeah no one escapes his scathing gaze though which is so which is so wonderful which is just, because it make it makes him the perfect central character to wander through the world with it's also partly about grief though because his um, his mother, who was a central part of the time that remains, has died, and then the film opens. Um, her her personal effects are being removed from the house, and that's that also seems to be a reason why he gets away because he wants to get away from the space that they shared together. Um, and so, 
I like the point too about the pleasures because although there are critiques, there's a critique of homelessness as well, which is pertinent in mm. both the later um, sections of the film. You also have this sense of like the transformational quality of Palestinians' pleasure in life. And there's a film out this year, a documentary out this year, earlier this year, called The Mayor by David Osset, which had a very similar moment where um, a group of young Palestinians in Ramallah are on the roof and they're talking about what a great thing it would be to have a party right now in view of the um, Israeli settlement so that they could see them having fun. And the ending of this film is in, is in direct conversation with that, that there's a transformational quality to the pleasure young Palestinians will take in, not only in their lives, but in continuing the Palestinian cause as well. Yeah, it, it's so valuable in the sense that, uh, unfortunately, there are, well, it's so valuable in the sense that it's so accessible, it is so enjoyable, it can be enjoyed by anyone like anyone can watch this and they will laugh at it it's not hyper remotely despite the fact that you can read into it so deeply but it is important in the sense that um a lot of people have no uh prior knowledge of palestinian culture and modern mm -hmm. palestinian culture there are people who would be surprised to know that there are even young people in clubs in palestine <laughs> you know <laughs> so i mean that is uh unfortunately <laughs> still very uh it's, it's useful, it's needed, it's something which is, it's going to be a very popular film, hopefully a widely seen film, and I hope that's going to do well, do good things for the public, the, the world, the global view of Palestinian people, a realistic view, a nuanced view. Yeah, and it's been, it's been such, a, such a long time waiting for this, not just because it's um, 10 years after um, the last feature you did, I saw this for the first time in London in 2019. So it's just been like a really long wait for it to finally emerge. And the great thing about the vignette structure that it holds is that the film in my mind was so close to the film as I saw it again, but it did not, it did not diminish any of the pleasurable qualities of it. It remained exactly the same, but kind of just elongated just with a greater sense of openness and openness of purpose. Um, I also love the, I love the slapstick. I love the, the the captain of the plane being hit in the face like that, that that's <laughs> perfectly fine and um i also love the there the, um cameos that are made throughout paris and new york city you get gail garcia bernal who turns up for a minute and has an incredibly like shrugging <laughs> very shrugging uh cameo but you also have uh, gregoire colon who's in a bunch of claire denis movies he's the um he's this guy very aggressive leather leather covered guy who follows Ilya Suleiman onto the metro and has this like incredibly homoerotic but also like incredibly threatening uh, stare off with him because Suleiman's not going to say a word. Um, so... so many characters in this film. Mm. I mean I, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually rewatch it tonight with my boyfriend <laughs> just because I love it that much and there is mm -hmm. as you say it does not diminish with second viewings or third viewings. And it's coming out when, do you know, Mark? Uh, June 18th, I believe. June 18th, so very shortly. So check it out, most definitely. So now we're going to talk about the Sheffield DocFest 2021, uh, which occurred from the 4th of June to the 13th of June. And as per usual these days, it's uh, it was done in a hybrid fashion. So um, finally, we could 
have a few screenings um, in person in Sheffield. Um, and also for those who don't know Sheffield Doc Fest, it's a really preeminent, important um, industry international festival for documentaries. And I think what we're going to really delve deep into in, into the program, but I think as uh, you know, all of us here are we're documentary fans and there's something for all of us. It's one of those film festivals I've always really wanted to go to. Um, I'm glad I got to go online this year. Um, but, you know, similar to uh, IDFA, International Documentary Festival in Amsterdam, um, but it has its own take and its own sort of way. And, and also on top of that, it's, um, it's really good for industry. Uh, there's a really important pitch session. So as a documentary filmmaker, um, if that's what you are, an aspiring documentary filmmaker, I highly recommend looking at their programs, um, trying to attend the festival in some capacity. Um, I think it's, it's well worth it. But we're going to be talking about their programs today, and we're going to be going through quite a lot of films. I'm going to mention just a couple. Um, we're going to be talking about the, the opening film, Summer of Soul. We're going to be talking about the closing film, uh, Stor The Story of Looking. We're going to be talking about Savior for Sale and also All Light Everywhere. And maybe one or two more that, um, yeah, we just bring up that we really particularly like. Overall, though, um, I know Mark and Clara really um, watched a lot of films within Sheffield. What was your impressions of this year's uh, festival? Sure, um, it's it's been it's been a pretty good slate, I have to say. I um, was kind of I wasn't really planning on attending attending it until I saw the program, and then I saw the program and thought, okay, I must must see some of these certain movies um, and their retrospective strands, particularly that I've been wanting to see for years and just appeared there. Um, the highlight for me so far has been one of those retrospective screenings. It was um, looking for Langston, which I had read copious amounts about in B. Ruby Rich's Nuclear Cinema and has been on the wish list for a very long time. Um, it's directed by Isaac Julian and it's about a kind of like a collage of um, jazz age and Harlem Renaissance imagery mixed in with this kind of queer farewell almost, a kind of like a, a, a almost a wake, um, sort of angelic wake that is then being compared to a party that's taking place in the jazz age. So it's it's got mixtures of Langston Hughes and James Baldwin within it. And it's just, it was just the most visually beautiful movie I've seen in a very long time. And I'm, I'm glad I waited that long. I delayed gratification for so long that it was perfect seeing it, um, seeing it in these conditions. But apart from that, the shorts have been good. Um, I was paying attention to the Focus Taiwan strand and they had a film there called uh, One World, One Dream which has a very interesting kind of like mirror effect and uh, has a great soundtrack as well. I need to look up the soundtrack for that. Um, but yeah, we'll, I'll, I'll bring up more films kind of organically as we go along, but it's been, it's been a pretty good year. And Claire, how about you? Well, I mean, uh, from what I've seen, I've been really enjoying how, um, how global it is. There are so many stories from across the world. Um, from places I'd never, I hadn't really, well, I mean, I, I'm pretty good at being aware of what's going on, but there, but there are places that, uh, you know, really know barely anything about, uh, like there's Papua New Guinean films, uh, which go into the, the details and nuances of the conflicts there and the social struggles there. And that, and you know, that ties in with things, um, 
the politics of Australia. So, I mean, these are things we really should be thinking about. And yeah, the, the Taiwan strand was super fascinating as well. Um, obviously because of, because of life. <laughs> I haven't seen as much as I'd like to have seen. Um, but yeah, highly recommend, highly recommend. To anyone that's never heard of it or hasn't considered going uh, or going online, now is a great time. Everything's online, so yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, I highly recommend it as well, just for my, you know, the fact I've caught about seven to 10 films this week, uh, also with life, like that's, that's a lot. Um, but there's so much in this program to take on. And I can't say that I've, I mean, again, also as a documentary film lover, that may be particular to my taste, but it's really, um, I think Mark put it out, you know, like all the different sort of options that you have from retrospective films you might've always wanted to see, um, as you mentioned, Clara, to films all over the world. I really loved, I didn't see it this time around, but I really loved uh, Los Reyes, which was part of the Chilean strand. And, you know, there's a lot of chat about this film called Stray. But when I saw that at um, IDFA a couple of years ago, I was shocked that it didn't go out in more places. It's such, a, it's just a fantastic film. And so, I mean, I remember crying when I uh, saw the, the filmmakers and they said, I think one of them passed away and it was too much because it was just oh. such a, yeah, very, very we, sad, but. We football, we dog called football. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, but yeah, yeah a great I mean, film yeah. to check out if you can. I mean, obviously when it comes out in other, in other capacities, but just so many options. And yeah, we're here to talk about a few of them, um, ones that you might be able to see in cinemas coming up, um, maybe because they're slightly notable or ones that you can find hopefully online in the future that we think you should or maybe shouldn't. Welcome to the Harlem Culture Festival here in the Harlem House. What time is it? You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. We'll start with Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, uh, directed by Amir Thompson, otherwise known as Quest Love. And um, Mark, did you want to tell us about this film? Sure thing. So Quest Love's become sort of a, um, a staple talking head in music documentaries over the past decade or so, to the point where he satirized that talking head expertise in pop star Never Stop Never Stopping, where he turned up and sort of took the piss out of his own position. And um, so it makes complete natural sense that he would go on to direct a mixture of an archival and a talking head documentary about music that would center a particular event in uh, musical American musical history, which is the um, the Harlem Cultural Festival, which took place in the summer of 1969, 
over six weekends, a variety of uh, like, you know, the who's who of who's great in American music at the time, Stevie Wonder, Mahalia Jackson, and Sly and the Family Stone, B.B. King, like just, uh, you know, name a great artist, they're likely to have had a connection or have been there. And so taking place in, in Harlem and it's a huge audience of nearly 300,000 people turned up across the six weeks mostly black Americans turning up, mostly black American acts as well. There, there are also um, sort of Afro-Cuban percussionists and musicians up there as well. If there's a white musician up there, it's conspicuous. Uh, there are, I think, two maybe members of Sly and the Family Stone who are white and then the mayor who turns up who's white as well, but that's about it. Um, and the, the performances are, I think, curtailed. They're, they're quite, they're quite shortened performances. You get snippets of, say, Stevie Wonder or Fifth Dimension, and then you get these like points of entry into wider cultural um, and political histories, municipal histories as well of Harlem and New York. Um, it's I, I think it's I think it's there's, there's so little to complain about because it's 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 very well pitched. As if you love American music documentaries, if you saw Amazing Grace last year um, with um, the Aretha Franklin concert movie. It's a perfect companion to this. It's another sort of reconstructed history because the footage was discovered in someone's basement, kind of just like warping away and he's resurrected it. And he has talking heads of people who either attended or appeared on stage and has them recollect about it. And um, I've got one minor caveat, but Amanda, um, you also saw this. What did you think? Oh, well, I, I was wondering what your minor caveat was, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I. <laughs> I guess I at first when I saw, you know, the interviews and I was like, OK, this is going to be kind of a standard film, um, you know, the way that it was, inter you know, the way the interviews were done and whatnot. And, and I was like, maybe this won't be that exciting, but I think it's the found footage. And I think like we've talked a lot about like, um, you know, MLK FBI and, you know, how archive footage is used and how it's treated. And I think it's it's in part the story. I think it's one of those like things that I, you know, if it didn't, if Questlove didn't know about this and, you know, like, and it's like the fact that we didn't know about this and this wasn't made a film before um, with the acts and the performances and the actual, you know, the actual footage that is there is shocking. Um, and also, and it's obviously relevance to the time two months before Woodstock and, you know, and, and also the time within these musicians lives and obviously, obviously what's going on in, in, in America in 1969, this is such a seminal piece of American history. Um, but it's the footage it's, it's, and, and I have to really give it to, um, Thompson for the way he put it together. I really think it's one of those things where I think about as a documentary filmmaker, you become an expert as someone who's become an expert on like banking in 1800s in New York, which is boring and modern dance, you know, you become the expert of what you're working on because you're so involved. Yet when you put somebody like Questlove on this project, there's so much passion and the there he is an expert on this and he knows how to put this together and really thought about it. And another thing to just shout out for Sheffield is that, you know, they were able to do a, a Q and A with him. And he really did talk about that process where yeah, you, you mentioned, you know, um, the Aretha Franklin, amazing grace, which hit, you know, Berlin alley, you know, hit all over. It's, it's very popular, but he had to think about like, what do I need to tell 
the story a bit more? Do I need to put some context in there and made those kinds of decisions? And I think, I think it's important the way that he did that. And I think from almost 15 minutes in when I thought, oh, those interviews are so kind of standard interviews, I got it and I was captivated and I was, I was blown away by not only the story, but also some performances like, I mean, Nina Simone's to me, I mean, Nina Simone is one of just so amazing, but just that, that scene was something that, oh, I could watch again and again and again. And just, I, I think it's a special moment for us to realize that this footage is now finally being televised, if you will, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would I'd echo that in the, the performance by Mahalia Jackson of yeah. Precious Lord Take My Hands, which goes into a kind of uh, playoff between her and uh, Mavis Staples, who kind of like hand the mic back and forth and like, no, no, you go first, no, no, you go first. And as they like reach the height, because they've both got like very like resonant voices, you can compare it to what Aretha Franklin does in Amazing Grace with exactly the same song, mm -hmm. um, because she has a much sweeter voice and the way that they both reach, the way they both go as high as possible for as long as possible, it's incredible. Um, my only caveat was that I, uh, this ends up being about two hours long, about 10 minutes of that is credits, end credits, mm -hmm. and sort of archival perm permissions, and what you would expect from an archival doc. <laughs> the cultural histories that Questlove investigates, and he, you know, pulls out of these performances and from his interviewees testimonies is so rich that I would love this to be longer. I feel like it is ever so slightly curtailed and those sort of rapid montages that he creates maybe going from like Stevie Wonder out to a wider point of cultural history or going from one of the attendees comments to the fact that the Black Panthers were providing security these like these facts are so interesting, but those montages are so quick, and I was just uh, I really wanted them to be longer. <laughs> That's, yeah. It's not a fair criticism because they make the film that you know they want to make and how long it is as well. But those felt slightly rushed to me at a point where I'd be like I could I could take two hours and twenty minutes of this if not more because it's that sort of it's got that sort of level of interest. Um, well yeah, I, I can see that. And I also think like, I mean, the good news is that I do think there is buzz around it. And, um, you know, I, I certainly see maybe a DVD or, you know, like a extended version, hopefully in the future, because it, I mean, it, it's really, really good. And mm -hmm. so I definitely think, but I mean, I think our last podcast that um, we talked about editing down and I, I, I respect the idea of like, sometimes, like you said, some of these performances, you could have watched it for hours and hours and hours, but you know, they, they were edited with choice and, and, and decision. And I respect that. And I, I think that sort of, it kept me captivated through the whole thing. And mm -hmm. yeah, if I sat down and watched this in a cinema, I probably, yeah, I probably would have blown, been blown away by both that context mixed with, um, you know, with, with the, with, with the actual performance. And of course I would have rather been there in some capacity. Um, but uh, yeah, no, you're, it really, I, I did kind of, I remember seeing it um, last weekend and was saying, this is, I just maybe needed a concert performance. I think when we had seen some of the other ones and we had talked about in a recent uh, podcast around 
you know, what is a doc and what's, you know, what's a theater play and what, you know, and whatnot. This was the kind of way I would like, like to see a concert uh, performance film made and um, done with such, yeah, love, you know, really, so. You do have the point to look forward to that I believe he's doing, Questlove's doing a Sly and the Family Stone doc right. at some point in the future, which is lovely news. So Yeah, and also... I also, again, going back to this idea of how, and I could go on and on about loving Q and A's and always will, but um, you know, how someone like Thompson had just such a interest in this, but to, but, but being his first film, obviously a really, I mean, I personally, you know, we all know I love the Oscars, but I loved his participation in the Oscars this year. Just taking, being an artist and I will, transfer that into being a director but also how he sort of thought about that process and how like how much he took that on as a as a challenge and it was kind of you know he, he explained this in the q a about how he was nervous about it he was nervous about taking on this project and um i think that nerves means that he had high respect to the form of filmmaking and also to the material and it it shows and so i'm glad to see that he'll be continuing um, working with film in, in this medium. So um, you will be able to check out this film um, apart from just Sheffield. I believe it's coming out um, on the 16th of July in the United Kingdom. And I believe it's also been out in the US as well. So uh, we highly recommend it. Summer of Soul was the opening film uh, for Sheffield Doc Fest. Um, and the other big hitter, the closing film, is The Story of Looking by director Mark Cousins, who in Edinburgh we all know well. Um, Clara, why don't you tell us about this film? So uh, I'm going to open with a potentially controversial opinion. Uh, <laughs> Um, so th this film has been chosen for the for the closing film for Sheffield Dog Fest, which uh, which I f which I find kind of uh, kind of sad considering there's I feel like there would have been um, some better choices, especially since the film uh, the film fest as a whole is quite meta in terms of the fact that it does have films about the act of filmmaking. There are a few films about that about the act of observing, the act of factual the the, the act of creating a factual film. And what that means and all the biases that are incumbent in that. Um, so I, I know that it makes sense um, that this film was chosen for the closing because it is about the story of looking and about how we perceive things and about how um, about how seeing is has been captured on film or thought about on film historically. Um, so yeah, this is the, the film the film tackles is, is a personal story. Of Mark Cousins because he has been uh, dealing with the health problem um, through, with his eyes. He has been losing his vision and is facing that as a filmmaker, obviously extremely daunting. So he's reevaluating what it, what it means to see. And he's asking and inviting other people to talk with him about what it means to them to see. And he's looking back on his life and thinking about um, all the visual cultures he's absorbed and how he's perceived himself, how he's seen himself. So it is a very meditative film. Um, there's a lot of musings um, about what, what it is to see and about film itself. Um, however, I'm I'm not I'm not the biggest fan of this film. <laughs> so um, I think I think Mark also agrees with me. He has some criticisms as well. Yeah. So it's sort of it, 
it's that point you mentioned about him beginning to lose sight in one eye. He has a cataract and he's preparing for surgery. So the film essentially opens with him in bed, half naked, talking in the most relaxed way possible to an imagined audience. The point that somebody could say in favour of this way of prison, way of presenting the material is that he's um, he's loose and associative and he's intimate. And I think somebody who would denigrate Mark Cousins would say, actually, he's too loose, he's too associative and he's too intimate. And the the way that the film progresses, which is kind of um, extrapolated from and sort of deals with threads of his book as well, which is also called The Story of Looking, um, is to essentially gather everything. And he ascribes significance to just about everything. So that when you get these essayistic trains of associations, you don't get any breathing time between the transitions. You don't get to understand why two things are juxtaposed together. There's no time for an edit to really express itself. He simply states that things are connected in his head. And that's not really what I want from an essayist, a, bit, a film essayist. I'd like people to like meditate on why, you know, why has why he gone from, uh, you know, a foot, footage that he recorded years ago of a particular thing in the landscape to a piece of film and a clip from a film that he's chosen that he loves. I don't know why he's creating these um, juxtapositions beyond very superficial and imprecise points of comparison. And I feel like imprecision and superficiality kind of describes his most recent work for me. Um, ever since I've been going, I enjoyed Mark Cousins' work when I began. I like, read the story of film book and enjoyed it and learned from it. But in recent years, I've just, the indulgence has crept up to such an untenable height. And you got something like Orson, uh, The Eyes of Orson Welles where he has uh, this incredibly, like, I, I would say irritating strophic voiceover structure where um, he's constantly just saying to Orson, you know, like you know, talking to Orson as if Orson's going to respond. Guess what? Orson Welles does respond at the end in an act of unbelievable self-indulgence. That's sort of, that has a parallel here because there's an imagined future Mark Cousins who talks to the audience at the end except I felt like this was so half-assed that he kind of began it and then decided, nah, drop it, it's not that interesting. And that's, that sort of describes the entire movie to me is, oh, this'll do. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll have a bit of me reading, um, you know, I'll, I will tweet a prompt and I will read the replies from my phone and that will be the most interesting way to present this material. I'm like, eh, no. It feels like a long stream at times. It feels like you sort of casually you know he's in the mood to discuss things and think about things and then he sort of rolls out of bed and sort of and switch, switches on a, on a live stream and um it, it does i mean yeah it, it draws a lot of disparate subjects and themes together and tries to cement them with a lot of musings and um a lot of flashes of his naked body <laughs> um and yeah he, he tries to rest the narrative of, of what, what is of looking but essentially but, but it just it just so often comes back to look at how many films i've seen and let's think about them for two seconds and flash them on screen and ooh, sadiajit ray he's good um but there but there is the poignancy to of the loss of his sight and you can re and you can really you can tell that he is wrestling with a lot of shit a lot of issues um but yeah i, I i'm in agreement it's very disparate and disjointed and quite, quite, quite indulgent. <laughs> it does feel like he's been set a project on a wee short college course <laughs> about how he feels about sight. <laughs> and he's um, put some things together. There's, there's a lot of footage of him sitting on a bus looking outside um, as, on, on his journeys 
which I mean is maybe would be quite mystic, like um, lovely and mystical and if I wasn't from Edinburgh, you know, looking at the castle from the from the bus, but indulgent. I'm sorry to say, Mr. Cousins. Mm. I would also say that like there are constraints to the film in a way, because although he's trying to be free to you know circle off and create associations and just dive through culture as as his want as he always wants to um there are there's a constraint of the pandemic obviously and about the kinds of interactivity you can have with people so that part with the with his twitter followers responding to him is uh, i found it incredibly lazy but i also understood that it's about the only way he could justify saying that the movie was about our visual lives as opposed to his because if he said well, we had to, we had to finish our film projects over the pandemic and we managed to get some interviews so <laughs> you know conduct all of our interviews remotely or from a distance I mean so it, it does it, it does come across as just sort of a, the, the the easiest the, the path of least resistance to get the information out there which I mean I mean that's his choice but it does it does get a bit tedious mm -hmm. when you're watching it Sure. And I like seeing Edinburgh being walked through as much as the as much as the next person, but there's only so much I can take when the the visual cues for Edinburgh are simply like jumping off points or points of entry into other discourses yeah. that I don't think he has a very like assured handle on. He's it, it sounds to me like, well this sounds good, so I'll leave it in, right? And yeah. that's that's really his critical method is if this sounds pretty good, I'm gonna leave it in and it's gonna remain there. Um, and I was beginning to think, like, is there a way to recuperate this? Because we're being very harsh. Uh, but it led me to an even harsher conclusion, unfortunately, because is, okay. this, is this less watchable and less enjoyable than the story of film and women make film where he's also operating on levels of huge imprecision and gener critical generalities and all the rest of it? But those have, like, it's important that he's that he's making mistakes in those like it's really like it's a point of critical importance as to why i didn't like them because he keeps on saying things that are patently not true interpretive and factual errors all over the place is this film and it's lower grade let's say like it's it's easiness it's you know it's i wouldn't say lack of pretension because he's quite a pretentious filmmaker but um let's say like it's it's lower stakes than the other two because the other two are like wide-ranging cultural and cinematic histories. This is far mm. lower. It's clearly the film of a free person, but it's also the film of a person who's free to just make banal statements. So is that, does that make it like less of an affront to me than when we make film with the story of film with the eyes of Orson Welles where he's being like just disingenuous about things? Or is it actually more of an affront because he's just decided this is like, this'll do, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just pack it in here. And I'm not sure, like, I'm not sure if I dislike this more or if I dislike the other films more. I think I'm just leveling off at maybe not being a Cousins fan. This is, yeah, this is one of the reasons why I think I'm being so critical is because I think, uh, you use the word affront, which I think is very, which is a good word <laughs> in a way, uh, I, that it was chosen as the closing film. Because I think there were a lot of other films that could be chosen that address the subject of looking better. Like, for example, one of the ones we're going to discuss later, All Light Everywhere that would be a good one to go with. So I think I maybe would have been more sympathetic to it if I'd uh, come to it, if I'd sort of stumbled across it and watched it and it wouldn't, hadn't been hailed as, you know, this like fantastic closing film piece, which, you know, this is the issue with Mark Cousins, I think people have with him, that he has this personality, he has this draw, he is given a platform regularly, but what for? 
is there substance to that? Is there a good reason for that? <laughs> um, Having not seen it, I'm definitely going to check it out, but because of what you've said for, for better or worse, but I do think there is an argument and maybe I consistently do that of, um, you know, how sometimes when you're very prolific, which Mark Cousins is, um, it's about, it's about how much you put out. And obviously I, so I, I do respect that. I would say there's a lot of filmmakers who are, who are, who who are very like I only put 10 films out ever and maybe one you know one is in three parts or something like that I'm not mentioning names and then people who will put out a film every year so I, I just to your question mark I think you know perhaps you know like it yeah it's a it's a period it's like it's a it's a period in Mark Cousins work and we've seen it he's been around for a while and um yeah, maybe not the best period. Maybe the blue period. <laughs> it's not the blue period, if you will. The story of looking is the closing film, was the closing film of uh, the Sheffield Doc Fest. And it will likely be out um, in cinemas and uh, you'll be able to see it elsewhere. Uh, uh, so if check it out uh, if, you, if you like. Speaking of looking and surveillance, um, we're going to go on to another film, um, a part of the Sheffield Doc Festival, All Light Everywhere. And Mark, why don't you tell us about that film? Yeah, so I'm immediately predisposed to enjoy a film with a well-referenced bibliography at the end of it. Um, <laughs> so it's uh, an essay film directed, as you say, by Theo Anthony, and it takes as its subject the I would say the connections between innovations in ocular technology and the ways in which this can be used by the state for purposes of policing, the purposes of the military, and purposes increasingly of surveillance. So there are kind of multiple points of entry into the film. Um, he the film kind of begins by assessing the point that there's a there's a blind spot in the eye where the um, the kind of retinal disc passes the optic nerve or the optic nerve passes the retinal disc there are no photoreceptor cells and so there's a blind spot this is then sort of like i would say given way too much emphasis in corresponding parts of the of the film where the blind spot is changed in context that i think i have to allow as a sort of essayistic transition but I ultimately think that there's a kind of overreaching in some of the, the joins, and I'm not always sure about the security of the connections that the film makes. But I'll begin by saying that it's for the most part in the present day set in um, Baltimore, Maryland, which is where the filmmaker is from. And it kind of follows three kind of uh, related incidents and three contexts. So one is about Axon Mobile, um, sorry, Axon Enterprises, which is a sort of security and surveillance company based in Arizona that produces tasers. They used to be called Taser International, I think. And they also produce these little body cams that obviously are a point of much contention in contemporary policing in the United States because they're often used to exonerate police officers when they've used lethal force on citizens. Um, and an analysis of the kind of the racial implications of this, the fact that it's mostly black people being killed by the police is incumbent in the film as well. So it goes from Axon Enterprise to Baltimore Police Department where these cameras are being sort of introduced to police officers 
and Anthony and his team kind of sit in on meetings where they're getting presentations about this. And the third part is this very strange um, guy called Ross McNutt, who is <laughs> the president of um, Persistent Surveillance Systems, which has this plane that goes over the city of Baltimore and takes constant photographs, like street accurate photographs, kind of Google Earth style photographs of the city. And it's a technology that he says is applicable to quote unquote troubled cities that will be you know, used in the, the police departments. And to get to an analysis of what all this means, he takes many detours into the past and about the sort of historical antecedents to these particular innovations, which I think we will get into in a moment. Clara, what do you think? Well, um, I love this film almost as much as I love um, It Must Be Heaven, but for different reasons. So um, I, I did a politics undergrad. I'm a political person. I'm very aware of the powers that be, and I'm suspicious of them, rightly so. Um, and so this film delves into, the, into all those systems, those structures, um, and the, yeah, the history of recording and surveillance, and then presents to us the way that things are going, um, the way that technology has been, is, is inevitably, um, technology always inevitably becomes a military tool. All technological advancements end up becoming part of the military industrial complex. Um, and whether whether the intention for that to happen was the case or not, that's how it is. The same with the, same with the internet, with our data sharing, mobile phones, the invention of the camera, it all does get abused in the end. Um, and this, this film goes into that in, in detail, but also with the kind of um, a wonderful pace and taste, I think, in my, in my opinion. Um, it's very watchable and it's quite hypnotic in a way, I think. Um, and it's, it's got this kind of cosmic bent to it as well, which I find really interesting. Um, if anyone's seen Devs, the, uh, the, the drama about, um, about programming and about this um, maniacal tech mogul who abuses his, his powers to become an all-powerful being that can essentially control time, um, then you will probably like this or kind of understand what I mean by the cosmic. Um, um, so, I mean, it's, there's a lot of comedy in this film as well, which I love. I mean, it's very scathing. Um, the, they, they get access to a lot of these companies which make the tasers and body cams um, and the police departments. And they're, I, I love that the filmmakers have no issue with kind of throwing those, those contacts under the bus um, and judging them and making light of them. And they do that very well, I think, in this film. Um, the, the idea of the body cam is, is very interesting. Obviously, as you mentioned, really pertinent to what's happening now um, and pertinent to shaping our current historical narratives. So a, a lot of the, the unrest that was happening in summer um, came down to the fact that we have the accountability that's provided by body cams and also phone footage. And it, so it's this war of information. Though, um, so truth is meant to be the singular thing, but there's obviously always biases and, and narratives being being created. Um, so this, this film is really, really pertinent. And then also, um, yeah, it kind of, it this leech, this subject leeches into all areas of culture and politics, even with the, um, the Sarah Everard case in the UK. Um, she was, the, the police officer was held accountable because of cameras attached to people's doorbells. Um, so that this really delves into that idea that surveillance, this tricky tension between surveillance being an accountability tool as much as a, a tool of social control. Um, yeah, so phone cameras, like the, 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 the fact that we, have, we all have cameras now, everyone's filming themselves. 
that has become a focus of, of debate about narcissism more than anything. But I feel like the surveillance, the surveillance um, issue hasn't been taken as seriously as it should be. Um, in 2012, the Cambridge Analytical scandal, the data hacking, a lot of, um, you know, like um, AI rec facial recognition technology. We've all heard about it, but we've not really taken much action or held anybody accountable for that. And this film does a really good job of questioning why we haven't done that and looks at community issues in America, in Baltimore, looks at people resisting that system, puts forward some excellent debates about why we should question all these things happening, why we shouldn't just get used to technology and surveillance. Um, I, think it, I think it's a really important film. I think it's a really beautiful film and it's hilarious, frankly. <laughs> I mean, for example, uh, we, we go we go into the the company that makes tasers. We're we're getting a we're getting a tour, <laughs> a tour that would be given out to someone who's maybe investing millions or is wanting to partner up with the company. But it's just this documentary crew, and this guy is giving the okay. So if anyone's seen the the meme, the Winnebago Man, classic classic meme. He's uh, the, the man showing him around is is that guy essentially. He's the Winnebago Man before he got fired and became a Winnebago salesman and was bitter. Uh, so he's, it's just the, the film is laden with such irony. So those guys showing them around the offices saying, oh, yeah, we're we're really big fan of open plan offices because accountability is so important. And then he goes and then he points up to this ominous black, uh, black windowed office and goes, oh, but that's the black box. That's the research office. They can see us, but we can't see them. It's neat. <laughs> he's literally describing a panopticon and he's saying this is great. So he just like he's so aware. <laughs> of, of the imbalances of seeing and being seen being watched and who's in control of that but he's so oblivious which is terrifying uh the whole the whole film is like hilarious and terrifying part of what's hilarious and terrifying too are the histories that they go into that they then like create i think at times imprecise juxtapositions between like the exact context of the use of let's say the um what, what would we call it again the like Pierre Jansen's revolver, like the camera that is kind of shaped like a, a Gatling, like a Gatling gun. Yeah. Like the exact technological capabilities of this are not correspondent to the ones in the present. I feel like there's a, there's like, yeah, sure, I buy these as historical antecedents of this. And it's like, yeah, sure, that's a, an innovation in embodied, unembodied vision, but I don't really buy it as like, a, preci a precise correlate i don't think it is but there's are low-hanging fruit if you're going to make a documentary and you find out that there was a guy who made a, like, who made a camera that was shaped like a shotgun and you're talking about the military industrial complex and surveillance mm -hmm. like why wouldn't you throw that in there i thought it was hilarious it just i thought it was i thought it was great so yeah i, I love this that it goes into the history of um documentation uh, the the birth of data extraction and then also because that is so inextricably linked to criminalization <laughs> so governments and the powers that be have been extracting data essentially so they can um, track people so they can hold them accountable for their crimes or suspect them of crimes and then make them scapegoats essentially um, that is that is the birth of it so I mean if anyone is familiar with Foucault the theorist um, he was he was a French philosopher looking at how France pioneered um, a lot of prison systems, a lot of social organization systems. So the fact that they go uh, they link those sur those surveillance technologies with the history of filmmaking also in France is very interesting. How um, to view, to frame, to to catalog, to to document something is to judge something 
and to their and to change its narrative just by the very nature of doing it. Um, so yeah, they, they mentioned this quote: "The act of observation obscures the observation," which is interesting. Which I this is why I think it should have been it was the prime candidate for the closing film of the Sheffield Doc Festival because I think it made the most interesting points about the act of documentation. Um, yeah, I kind of. Uh... I think about the the connections to so like Bertignon and New Bronner, particularly with the pigeons. Like the pigeon one's fantastic because that's oh. so that's so sad and so, so strange that pigeons are being used essentially as like live prototype drones in war, like for um, wartime aerial reconnaissance. That's that, that's horrifying. But where I'm complaining about like the juxtapositions is I think in the what I mentioned about the blind spot and the scotoma um, in, the, in the eye at the point at which light enters, that is then used as a correlate to the body cam and the fact that the body camera doesn't show the person who can see essentially like proxy through it. And the thing is, is that like, although that's a, okay, fine, I understand the point of the parallel. It is an imprecise parallel though, because one of those is intended and one of those is not. So the fact that there isn't like a reciprocal camera also looking at the officer is a point of design. And the yeah. fact that that's in the eye is not, that's a point of evolution. So I think there are like, there are different subjects, they're covering different subjects and they're being sort of like smashed together at times, which is also in the film's editing because you get, as you mentioned, those like cosmologically tinted, uh, almost like montage reveries, which then smash cut to the next thing. And it'll maybe be like the guy from Axon Enterprises like talking in his very strange Bob Odenkirk voice, like it's yeah. very, it's very, very strange. I, I do also appreciate the fact that they're honest about the construction of the film itself, and there are so many moments where, whether it's the voiceover, they they include the breathing of the voiceover, and there's that moment where it says like usually in a, a voiceover narration in a documentary, you wouldn't include the breathing. So it's trying to lay bare the cinematic apparatus and the constructiveness of the film's own form. But um, at points, this is the most oblique material in the film. Like at points, these this serves little to no purpose. Um, those points were like, things are floating in the room, which reminded me slightly of um, Kirsten Johnson's camera person. Uh, sorry, Kirsten Johnson's um, Dick Johnson is dead, where like they're also the camera begins to like notice people and things floating in the frame. Whereas that has like a sense of play about it. This I think is essentially just trying to admit its own construction. And I'm like, okay, sure, you're admitting your own construction, but are you not just actually obfuscating a few more ideas that are pertinent in doing that? So it's a it's actually achieving the reverse effect, whereas it's actually obscuring its ideas by uh, revealing its constructed form, which I thought was a really interesting contradiction. But yeah, I, don't know what I, I like that. I, I like that. I thought that I thought that was I thought just that if if you if you twig that, then that would just made it more enjoyable. It was like a cheeky little joke that you were in on. I thought, but I mean, I I, under, I understand what you're saying though. But. And uh, the last, I think the last point is about the very ending, which uh, I won't say, I won't describe, or I won't talk about too much. I have seen people criticize it as shoehorned and kind of put there for very little discernible purpose. And I, although I think there are, as I just mentioned, like obscured ideas and not sort of um, carried out through lines in the film, which I suppose is the right of an essayist, but I don't think the juxtapositions are always precise. Um, that ending does not feel tacked on to me, even though the subtitles admit that it is. Like, we couldn't find room for this in the main body of the essay, so we're going to have to put it here. Whereas what that actually shows to me is something the film it does all throughout, which is encourages a critical literacy in terms of images. 
all throughout the film, you have these moments where someone has shown some footage of a body camera that's drawn from a body camera and the voiceover is analyzing what it omits, what a little tag in the corner, what the date, what that code is, what this all does to like the officialness of the image and the way that it's going to be used in law enforcement and in the courts. So by doing that and connecting it to what I can't say is in the ending, which we'll say is like a passing of the baton of critical uh, visual literacy, I think it's totally appropriate and thematically precise, but there aren't enough of those throughout the rest of the film for me. I think it works there, but I don't think it always works throughout the film, but it's a fascinating subject. I just don't always know that it goes about it in, the, in precisely the, uh, an equivalently fascinating way. Great, well, you've piqued my interest in both All Late Everywhere and the story of looking for different reasons, but um, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing that. Uh, this weekend, we've, we've uh, recorded this a week before and also definitely everyone should check out all Light Everywhere. Um, it's, it's a fascinating documentary, as you guys noted. So we've gone through a whole like analysis of these films, but I, I guess we're, there's a few other films. I mean, there's plenty of films. So I guess we'll, we'll pull out a couple of films we all were talking about mentioning you might want to watch in the future. Um, there is one film called Savior for Sale, which is a French, I think it's a French documentary. It's uh, distributed by MK2, which is about the uh, Salvatore Mundi uh, uh, painting that was um, bought, I think purchased the largest amount of money ever for a painting, 450 million. Um, really, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the actual story is very fascinating. Um, and this this film has made a lot of press in terms of coming out. I think of it's I think it's been hit uh, you know distributed widely um, around the the story of how this was you know the controversy around um, art films. So you know if you're into art history and uh, the art trade, I think Clara saw this as well. You might be interested. I thought it was a fascinating story of something I hadn't ever seen. Whether or not it was a fascinating documentary, I'm not sure. But, you know, like worth, worth, worth delving into again, if you're interested in that topic. Um, so you might want to check that out, Salvatore, Savior for Sale. Um, but Clara, how about you? What, do you have any other films that you saw that you want to mention? Um, I will mention um, just, to, just to give some attention to Savior for Sale. Um, I, re I feel like th there have been a few, there have been a few films um, about the art world, which do reveal the fact that there is a lot of smoke and mirrors um, peel, they sort of peel back the, the layers of artifice behind, you know, the academic opinions, the yeah. money that is going into this, and it it is quite fascinating. If uh, if only from the perspective that you might find it extremely sickening and shocking and uh, invigorating, almost to see how much money gets and uh, and and artifice goes into goes into the industry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but apart from that, um, I think one of my one of my favorite favorite films that I saw is. Um, life uh, it's called return life after isis not to be mistaken with another film about also about isis survivors or participants <laughs> participants um which is called the family return after isis um so this film follows women who left their home countries to join isis uh, they survived and they currently find themselves stateless and living in refugee camps in syria um, they are also women who they've, they've gotten a lot of flack, obviously, um, 
<laughs> but it humanizes the women who became the tabloid headlines and the villains and reveals the cultish power of ISIS and the tragedy that befalls everyone who fell for that kind of cultish indoctrination and propaganda. Um, I remember at the time um, there was an interview uh, with Shamima Begum, who was a, a Londoner who uh, left to join ISIS at the age of about 15, I think. And um, she was plastered over so many news outlets. Every news outlet that could get their hands on this interview wanted to get it. It was her in a, in a niqab that was pulled down. She looked very tired and haggard, very, <laughs> very tired. And she was, uh, she was remorseless. And she denied, uh, she denied the things that happened, that happened, a lot of the war crimes that had occurred. And, um, and she was kind of surprised and dejected about her being denied re-entry to the UK, which obviously everyone jumped on and thought, how dare she assume that she should be allowed back in. Um, but this film, I think, is, is really a triumph in the sense that it makes you reevaluate how you judge people and how you judge teenagers, especially. <laughs> um, it really it, it brings out the fact that the relatable naivety of teenagehood about how so easily you can be drawn into something if you're alienated or you feel like you could be doing good and how convincing propaganda can truly be. Um, it's also kind of, um, kind of heartening in the sense that it gives you an inside look into how ISIS crumbled from the inside because any quote state that is built um, on, a, on a collection of people that were brought up in societies where you're taught that you should think independently and that women especially should be independent and have their own voice and their own volition in their life is going to fall apart. So that was really heartening to see that, you know, evil doesn't really just take root and then spread indiscriminately and without any stop. There, there's humanity in everyone. There is love in everyone. <laughs> and even these women who've been, been completely tarred and feathered publicly are uh, relatable people. Um, and there's also, um, it covers charity workers that are working with these women in the camps and they're, they're extremely respectable people. A lot of them are from Kurdish backgrounds and obviously the Kurdish people um, suffered great losses and great violence at the hands of ISIS. And they're, they're the ones that are helping. And um, there's this really poignant moment where one of the women, the Kurdish women says, she's speaking to uh, an American, an older American woman who went to join ISIS um, and she was acting as a nurse. She said, why should I be, why, why should I do this? Why am I doing this? And then um, the American woman says back to her, but why should I be punished? I never even had a parking ticket in America. And the Kurdish woman goes, but your husband could have killed my sister, my cousin. And then it goes on to her trying to rebuild these women's lives and trying to pick apart the uh, indoctrination and the radicalization, which can be done. Humans aren't necessarily lost causes, and especially when you look at terrorists, um, they don't reoffend. You can pick apart that propaganda so easily. It's such a, it's such a easily, it's so easily done. Um, so yeah, it's a wonderful film about alienation, about humanity. Um, yeah, and also it make yeah, um, with regard specifically to Shamima Begum um, as as a sort of villain character. She, it turns out that, she, well, from her side of the story, it turns out that she, um, she was under duress in those interviews. And while she was living in camps, there were a lot of women who were still radicalized and had no intention of leaving ISIS. And um, they were, they were um, burning down <laughs> de-radicalized women's tents and wreaking vengeance on them. So she was under duress. Um, so from that perspective, it's interesting. Got to reevaluate where, how we form our opinions, what media we're drinking in, what motivations they have to tell those stories. Um, I think it's a really important film. ISIS is something which is kind of melted into the background. They've been quote, defeated, but there is a wider story 
um, there, which is, is ongoing, which is about prejudice, about alienation and judgment. I think it's Absolutely. vital film. I mean, that sounds very fascinating. And again, we'll be on my list uh, this weekend to catch before it, Sheffield ends. Uh, so thank you. And Mark, did you have anything to note uh, that that one should check out? Um, well, I mean, obviously in the future because the Sheffield Doc Fest will be over, but that we're reviewing. Sure. So one, because we're not doing, uh, we usually do short recommendations, but we won't this month because we're kind of stacked for material. So um, this is a short film which will definitely be up on the Field of Vision website um, after it's done the festival circuit. It's directed by Mo Melissa Jira Grant. It's called They Won't Call It Murder, which is a kind of, um, it's almost a kind of uh, sort of precursor history to the events of last summer and the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor about police killings, which were then related to All Light Everywhere in a way, um, which the officers who killed citizens, mostly black, um, mostly black citizens, got away with killing them. And that's where the title comes from. They won't call it murder, obviously, whether in court or whether in internal investigations. And it's a kind of emotional history of that, um, of, well, terrible injustice. Um, the other, I was going to recommend maybe two more just quickly. There's a film called The Inheritance by Ephraim Asili, which I find fascinating. It's a fiction film, but it makes brilliant use of documentary material. Um, it's kind of like a, a remixed version of La Chinoise by Godard. It's uh, kind of set in a collective where um, a, group of, a group of black activists gathered together, set up this collective and educate themselves and talk and invite speakers, they invite speakers who were part of the MOVE organization who the state of Philadelphia bombed in 1985. And that, that, there are quite a few films at the festival this year that were on that subject. Um, and a film from a few years ago called Let the Fire Burn by Jason Osder that I thought was fabulous and just an amazing archival reconstruction. This is in brilliant and incisive conversation with those other films. And the last one, uh, it's not because I think it's a great movie, just because I'm really interested in the subject, which is uh, recent Brazilian politics. Um, there's a film called Alvorada, which is about the presidential uh, palace in Brasilia, where the president lives. And the time at which this is set is just before and during, and then slightly after the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff in 2016. And there's a kind of trio of um, documentaries that came out recently, Edge of Democracy and The Trial, that are all about this subject, but all two distinct angles. Um, so Edge of Democracy is like a panoramic view of Brazilian politics and society, whereas The Trial is very specifically about the defense team and the case that they mount against the impeachment articles that are ridiculous. Like the, it's a, such a vindictive attack against their presidency. This takes a spatial, angle which is all through the lives not only of Dilma Rousseff but also of her staff who work in the building in various capacities allowing for its smooth running and things get more and more harried but as things get more and more harried and as tension begins to emerge in the, in the everyday workings of the Alvarada uh, Rousseff remains incredibly cool and this I think in I think in the in a kind of in a trio together, they paint a really like terrifying and agonizing portrait of a, a country which is 
much like the UK, much like America, much like India, swung towards regressive politics in the last 10 years or so. And it's a really like fascinating but terrifying portrait of that like slow and steady decline. Uh, one thing I have to say is like, and I, and I asked um, all of you what you're, you know, we talked about the beginning, our overall thoughts, but I guess the one thing I really liked about the Sheffield Doc Fest is that we were able to do it online this year. And it certainly is something that's really great with a, a genre like documentary to share that to a larger audience and, you know, and to make that, you know, us to be able to go without having to go there. And I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that that happened. But I almost would like to say I'd rather have a month of this because there's so much going on. Yep. Um, it, it really seems like one of these things that could be offered with hybrid festivals because this the access to these kinds of films is very hard, you know, like, I mean, yeah, like they're hard to find. And I think the curation of something like Sheffield Dogfest shows us how important curation is, but also um, for, for doc lovers like ourselves, like how this is it would be great for us to have this for a bit longer so that yeah. we can really delve into it. But I don't know if- A little bit of time as well. So you can recommend, yeah. you can watch it a couple of days in, recommend it to a friend and then, you know, a week later they can, I wholeheartedly agree. It's not too long till um, Open City Doc Fest though. So you don't have too long to wait for another documentary festival. No, there's plenty of Doc Fests, but I think, yeah, I, I guess it's just, it, it, it almost like feels like it could be a year pro it could be a year program or, or just it's this now that one of the things that we're thinking about in you know like this new post-covid world and we've opened up this hybrid format is mm -hmm. is what what does that offer you know certain genres of films that you know have core audiences and I think what we've just seen is that there's so many great films that I mean, you know, some of these were happening during COVID. I was, I think it was Savior for Sale, for example. Like you could see some guy like waving a mask around, you know. So it was definitely finished during <laughs> during that time. But um, yeah, no, I mean it's um really wonderful festival. I I can't wait to go to Sheffield. I've been to Sheffield for the Cinema for All Awards, but not for DocFest. I can't wait to go at some point, but a great introduction to it. So if you can check it out in the future and um, yeah, check out these films that we recommend as part of um, our Sheffield Doc special. And thank you so much for being part of our June Cinetopia podcast. We'll be back in July. And as mentioned, check out cinescapes.co.uk for our outdoor film festival. And um, if you're in Leith uh, and you wanna see train spotting, I'm sure you might have seen it many times, um, you know, but you wanna see it outdoors, uh, join so now us. Now you can you go can. to the pub and then go see train spotting, which is a valuable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a combo, it's a combo, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, see you all next, uh, next month and thank you for joining us. <laughs>